Good evening. It's great to have you all here. Um, my name is Milena Kalinowska, and I'm director of public programs here at the Hirschhorn Museum. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here for tonight's Meet the Artist. It's a talk with Cyprian Gayat and Mario Garcia Torres. What we are doing this evening is to celebrate the freshly open direction show, which is absolutely engaging, provocative, and um, fascinating to absolutely look at. Uh, this discussion uh, will be moderated by the curator of the exhibition, Kristen Heilman. She's curator of the Baltimore Museum of Art, and they will be discussing together the artist's recent as well as upcoming projects. Before we start, I'd like to just say, please turn your cell phones off, because any kind of cell phone little sort of behind things, it will be very disruptive to their talk. I also would like to say, when you leave, I'm, I encourage you to pick up our fall magazine. It looks fabulous. And of course, you will also find all of the interesting information there. Um, I'd like to draw your attention to two fourth uh, lectures that will follow. One is the lecture on November 16 by the chief conservator, Susan Lake. And she'll be talking on William de Kooning, the book that she has just finished. And also on November 18, we will be screening Sundance award-winning documentary, Wasteland. I'd like to also extend a few thank yous. The first one goes to the Smithsonian Latino Center, and in particular to their exhibition and public programs director, Ronald Woodman, who has supported these programs as well as this exhibition. I also would like to thank Jean-Pierre Banquet from EDF, Electricité de Français, and French Ambassador of the United States, Pierre Vemont, again supporters of this exhibition. I also would like to thank the exhibition staff as well as program staff, and would like to extend the thanks to all of the members who support these exhibitions. So let me tell you a little bit about the speakers. Um, Cyprien Gaillard was born in Paris in 1980 and now lives and works in Berlin. He was recently awarded a very prestigious French prize of Marshal Duchamp. His work has been subject of exhibitions and special screenings in different places such as Tate Modern, Wexner Center for Art, Kunsthalle Basel, ICA Philadelphia, and the New Museum in New York, among many other places. Soon he will be traveling to Los Angeles as the first French artist to hold a residency at the Hammer Museum. Mario Garcia Torres was born in 1975 in Monclova, Mexico, and is now based in Mexico City, he has exhibited in many group and solo exhibitions, including a wonderful presentation he did in 2007 Venice Biennale, where I believe Kristen Hallman first encountered his work. He also presented his work at the Berkeley Art Museum, the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, Museum Reina Sofia Madrid, and Tate Modern. Just a few words about Kristen. Kristen Harman was formerly the Hirschhorn Associate Curator of Contemporary Art. 
She has organized many exciting shows, including Cinema Effect Realism and memorable and through it Perception and Reflection. In the fall of 2009, Kristen became Curator of Contemporary Art and Department Head at the Baltimore Museum of Art. We really miss her, but it's great to have her back with these wonderful artists. Please, let's welcome them all. Well, thank you very much, Milena. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. And I think one thing that was really striking to me about that introduction is that you didn't tell my birth date, uh, <laughs> which I think is great. And I, I, if you're a curator, I guess you get a free pass. And so I picked the right profession. <laughs> um, but it's been a pleasure to work on this show and a pleasure to work here again at the Hirshhorn. Um, we're going to keep this very informal tonight. We have a, a small, small group, so there'll be opportunities for the audience to ask questions. Um, and what I thought we would do is we would start out with both of the artists giving us a little bit of background about their work, particularly the works in the show, contextualizing this work perhaps with some of their other research or other endeavors. And then I'll ask a few questions to sort of turn it more into a conversation, and then we'll open it up to all of you to ask questions. I realize that some of you have, have had the chance to see the show and some might have not, so we'll try and provide as much information and context as we can. And Mario has volunteered to, to go first, right? So um, why don't you orient us to your work? Uh, that's a big question. I mean, that's a big, uh, I don't know how to start, but um, well, the work that I, that we install here, um, it's probably one of the works that are a little bit more lyrical that I've done, uh, less text-based, and um, so I thought, so kind of the, the, the perception of it is, it's really more experiential than, than, than text-based, and um, and uh, so uh, when, when I was thinking about this, this talk, I thought instead of showing you the work that is already there, um, I will try to kind of give you a little bit of background to read that work. And even though uh, there's a little text there that you can kind of key you in the work, I thought it would be interesting to kind of show you a little bit of um, some images and some research that I've made to do this piece. So you're, you're really getting kind of the backstage version of it. Um, so how do So my, my work is, the work is, um, the, that it's over there is, is about a hotel. Uh, uh, coincidentally, I've made a few works that are around hotels, but it's, it's really a coincidence. And uh, this, this hotel is called the Grape Tree Bay Hotel. It's a place that I went when, when it was already gone. Um, but I was able to, um, to get some people to talk to me about and get some images around it and try to understand. And, um, it's, a, it's a hotel that is in the west, in the east coast of uh, San Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands in the Caribbean. Uh, and it's a hotel that was started to be um, built around 58 or 59. And the reason why I started to be interested in this, in this venture was the fact that an artist, a French artist, uh, Daniel Buren, was, uh, did one of, well, he did his 
first site-specific work. And I'm really interested in, I was really interested in his work in general and his, his text and his writing and his thinking. And, and then I discovered uh, that he had made this, I mean, the site-specific is one of the, I mean, the most important, one of the most important, he talking about site-specificity is one of the most important things that he have made and how the context changed the work and all this. And then I kind of started looking and, and I realized that he had done his first in-situ work uh, in this hotel. So I started to research a little bit and, um, and I realized that the, the history of the, of the hotel somehow was very parallel to, what, to, to his own development. Uh, his work there, it's something that it's acknowledged, but it's really not really talked about in their history. So I was really inter interested in, in sort of figuring out how to get into it and, and, and also how to experience it and how that context had been changing throughout the decades and how that will ch keep changing his own work. So it's kind of, since it's the first work that he made, it's also the work that has changed the most because the context has changed so much, the meaning of it has changed so much. So I was really interested in this. Uh, this is one of the views from the hotel where I was never there. Uh, this, this picture probably was from, from 62 or 63. And, um, well, I should say something before. Um, and it's the fact that I started to get interested in Buren because he, when he finished his school, uh, reading about him, I realized that he had come to Mexico and, and that he was very interested in Mexican muralism. So uh, I first thought that, and then I realized that he had made some, some works related to, to Mexican muralism and he was really trying to bridge uh, the sort of abstract, modern, most contemporary uh, work from the 1950s and 60s with that, that Mexican modernism because he believed that uh, Mexican modernism was the only phase in, in, in that history that was somehow socially engaged. So he, he was invited to, um, to the Virgin Islands to work there. He spent a year first and then some other months later. He first came in 1963 and did his first murals that somehow um, are more related to Mexican muralism. And those murals, you can see them in these panels in this picture. If you see, this is the, the main building of the hotel. At some point it got enlarged, but this is the main building and the, the top of it is the, the lobby of the hotel and downstairs is the, in front of the pool is the restaurant. And in the restaurant, there's these panels in the back. And those are murals that Buren did in 1963. And they depict somehow the sports and, and the costumes of, of the island. And they're stylized uh, figurative murals, which are gone by now. I will tell you later. And um, this, is, this is another view of, of the same place. There you could see a little bit more of the murals in the back. And um, this is probably the closest image that we have in color of these murals of Daniel Buren. Um, and one of the most interesting um, uh, things about it, uh, in, about the history of the hotel, is that it was always uh, an economic failure. 
the hotel when when uh, a New York investor sent money to to make the hotel uh, uh, at some point uh, when the when the U.S. Virgin Islands started to be interesting strategically for for the war they started to figure out that maybe the maybe tourism was a good a good thing to do so they they make some tax arrangements for people to invest in it so this guy in new york thought that he was going to make a business out of it and they started building the hotel and some months later he realized that the guy his partner in the u.s virgin islands had used the money to invest some in some other places and not in the hotel so when he came and look at the to look at his hotel he realized that there was nothing built so it's really his lawyer who we have the most long account of, of the history of the hotel and uh, and that's also what leads to how Buren ended up decorating the place so at some point when they started um, um, trying to arrange, these lawyers start trying to arrange uh, to get the money back and actually build a hotel. They not only went as far as um, getting the money back, building everything, but they really had to make a lot of efforts. They had to um, open up a new uh, flight from New York. They had to lobby to um, uh, uh, make roads to go to the hotel. They had to renovate the, the 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 airport, and nevertheless, it was never really a a, a real economic venture. And at the same time, uh, Buren, who was being there, he came in 1963 and 65. He was developing his own work. He was very very early in his work, and he was also writing letters saying to his parents that he wasn't happy about what he was doing. That he was really frustrated that he was working there, but nothing really was coming out. So I really thought these two histories were, were really interesting. This is one of the other uh, murals that he made there, and it's 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 always circulated in black and white. So th those image, in, images in color are the only ones that that we have from the time. And this is also an early picture, probably from 66 or 67. And in the back of the picture you see the main, the main mural, which is an abstract image. And I will show you, it's right in the back in that two-sided building. It's almost like a, a Matisse painting. And this is an image that has circulated in, in documents from Buren. It's, if you see, it's, it's not finished, which I also th thought it was interesting. He took a picture when, before it was finished, it's the only color picture that we have of the painting, of the mural. This is another view of the restaurant in the lobby area of the hotel. This is the entrance of the hotel. This is, of course, one of the rooms. And this is a little bit of an extension of the hotel, uh, which is really interesting. At some point, they thought that they would make cottages and they will sell them one by one and they will try to have this share ownership. And on the way to, that, to those uh, cottages, you see this other mural of Buren. Uh, this picture is from, uh, I don't know, 67 or 66 as well. 
And as you see, um, Buren was doing this stripe, I mean, he's been doing this stripe painting, so even though my work doesn't really say that in a way, this, it could be acknowledged as, as kind of a very early beginning of those, of those uh, paintings that he, he's been doing for all his life. So I'll show you a couple more images of the same mural. And um, this is a painting that he was doing as well. He was with his girlfriend at the time when he was doing these canvases. And when he actually uh, writes back to his parents about, about his work, he was really referring to the canvases he was painting. So at the same time, he was kind of doing this tropical work. And at the same time, the, the lines and, and things were, the things that were, the now he's uh, famous for were somehow there. This is one of the one of the paintings that he did in 1965 at the Great Bay. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the hotel got hit by a hurricane and in 1989, a hurricane Hugo. I don't know if you remember, um, but he this was the 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 real uh, the, what really made the business to get closed. They they really tried to save it many times, and in 1989, it hit it hard. So they closed the hotel and it's been indicated since then, at least when I was there in, I don't know, 2005 or so. Um, these are some views from the, from the hotel. Um, most, of, most of these images come from either from postcards or from a brochure or a magazine advertising. Is this Buren's boat or? Well, no, this is not Buren's boat, but I wanted to show something, uh, something interesting, which is a work from 1990, and is this, which is, it's of course, I mean, it, uh, something somehow related. <laughs> My work is not really about making these historical relationships, but I thought it was funny to have this, and this is the iconic lines that Buren has been working with, of course, for many decades. And this is uh, the tennis courts, and this is one of the cottages. And this is the um, yeah, nightlife at the Grape Tree Bay. <laughs> and the, the band there, it's uh, Pedrito Altieri's band, which is a steel band from, uh, from Puerto Rico, who used to play in the Virgin Islands. And at some point in the efforts to make the hotel economically viable. They recorded a record of the steel band and they distributed this record throughout uh, travel agencies throughout the US. Uh, you can get this record in, in, uh, on eBay, it appears often. And what was interesting to me was that at some point, I mean, to, in my work I used music in that sense and I produced a record as well because I thought it, would be, it was an interesting effort to promote the hotel. So in a way, uh, my work that is upstairs, it's a little bit a promotion of the hotel and it's a little bit about, it's a little bit of a promotion of, the, of, of that failure, both of the hotel and of Buren. That, that failure that at some point, um, Buren thought it was a failure, it actually became a very fundamental thing. So I sort of copied the strategy of the hotel and made a new record and asked my friend to, to make a record and, and that way sort of uh, try to communicate this story that I am telling you. Um, 
and this is this is the, the last image of of the hotel that I have. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing how serendipitous so much of the things that you you found are. You know, the, the how what's it? Serendipitous. I mean, some of these things that really push the story forward yeah. that you found in the artifacts. Yeah, I mean, in a way, for me, it was really what was interesting was wasn't um, really figuring out that Buran had made these works, but it really, what really made me go was the fact that I knew that it was hit by a hurricane and it had, it had been in the cave for 20 years so I really wanted to go see those murals after, um, after that sort of natural process in a way and see what happened and how do we, how do we see and read those, those murals today and after that. So in some ways that's a, a great segue to Cyprian's work um, which also deals with Disaster. Yeah, <laughs> images of, of buildings in decline. So, would you like to? Um, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll show uh, moving images. Maybe I'll show uh, tornadoes. So, wait to start. So this is uh, one of my very, very early works, like probably one of my f the first films I, I made. Um, it was interesting because Mario was talking about uh, hurricanes and I was trying at this point to kind of mimic a kind of uh, natural disaster using things that, um, well in this case what, what, I, what I did is I used to um, uh, steal fire extinguishers from different buildings in Paris and uh, and then I would collect them and would drive a car outside Paris and find a landscape that uh, that that I would like or that I would be interested in and then I would get uh, different friends of mine to launch all these fire extinguishers at the same time so here's like uh, one of the documentation one of the, <coughs> one of the films uh, of and then I did uh, about about five films that are only the same protocol always. Um, a view of a landscape, a, a cloud comes out and um, erases a part of the landscape and then finally disappears. This is the last scene of a film, it's much longer, it's about 20 minutes long. And uh, I think it's, it kind of shows a lot of things that are important for me about uh, kind of my concerns about landscape and uh, how to make like a lot of my works, I consider myself as a kind of uh, 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 landscape painter, but understanding also that landscape painting is absolute kind of a dead medium and um, trying to kind of find ways to uh, inject a new form of dynamic within uh, that, uh, that story. And um, in that case, I. I I started filming landscapes, and my 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 idea is that I had to start to to intervene on the spot, on the spot that the representation, a simple representation of a place or of a landscape, wasn't enough. That I had to confront myself to that landscape, uh, and so I started using these these fire extinguishers. There was kind of a common thing to do. I mean, I was on the first one to launch fire extinguishers. Kind of a top common thing. Where, uh, young like teenagers would do uh, in Paris at the time it's kind of a common act of of, of, of vandalism and then I 
later on took uh, started to filming on, on film on 35 millimeter and then got uh, let's see this is my two friends running out of the, hood, of the woods <laughs> <laughs> because uh, at the time it was hunting season but this is just an anecdote and so they were hunting in these woods but this field is not their field and it was not our field either but they were they were using they were investing that space as for hunting and we were investing it for much more different purposes yeah. and um, this is another film of mine that also is about um, confronting myself or my friends to a landscape. And it's quite funny because we're, you were showing old postcards, old kind of utopian postcards of, uh, of hotels. And it's a bit the same story because we, we, we went there, I saw old postcards, these kind of postcards that were made at the time the building was finished, you know. And this postcard uh, had uh, people windsurfing and having different kind of, uh, <laughs> of uh, or swimming in this lake, and you know it, 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 it seemed like it was a it was a place you could go swim in. And uh, we took a, um, a field trip, and but based on these postcards, we thought it would be it would be a good place to like spend a, spend an afternoon, a sunny afternoon, a Sunday. Uh, uh, month of August. It's just outside Paris. It's actually an important building by a Spanish architect called Ricardo Bofil, who is uh, <laughs> who is considered by a lot of people not the greatest architect, but that I still like. And um, what happened is that when we arrived there, of course, uh, uh, the, the views from these utopian postcards had changed, and the level of the water had uh, the, the 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 lake had been restored, and so. It was not this ideal, idyllic place where you can go swimming, and um, he, he dove. I never asked him to dive, but he, he dived, and um, and I kept filming. That's that's it's it's, and he looks at the camera at some point. It's kind of interesting. He's really one of my closest friends, and uh, and he, he looks at the camera, saying a little bit, uh, "Is this why we came here for?" And and. Uh, <laughs> And I just kept filming that, that scene, but it's kind of, a, and, and to me it is a bit this kind of tragedy in a sense, because it's, but the tragedy more about my, my generation, my time, is that like, Ricardo Bofil came out with these great new ideas of post or neoclassicism with buildings with columns and stuff, like looking like Rome, but obviously being a housing project for, uh, in the suburbs of Paris, and, um, and, uh, so we went out there, and then uh, this tragedy happens. We couldn't, to me, it's a very kind of classical tragedy of someone diving in the lake and breaking his nose and looking back at the landscape. It's a bit like this landscape refused to, to be um, engaged with or somehow. And I think that's like really one of the important keys to my work that I kind of always refer to is that I try as much as I can to a certain extent to engage with the, with the places that I'm given with and uh, uh, one of my also big references in my work uh, after landscape painting is land art and the way that like American artists dealt with uh, landscape by spending time uh, uh, in the desert but also in the suburbs you know like uh, Smithson investing in New Jersey and um, um, moving rubble and uh, you know, Michael Heiser's double negative was always a big inspiration for me because you know, he dynamited the whole part of a cliff and then drilled uh, things that actually could never happen today with such ecological consciousness we have and so these are kind of the important uh, things I wanted to raise and I will show one last video here
an extract of a film that I shot in Glasgow, in Scotland, about uh, two years ago, the course of the summer. And so this modernist building has been built over uh, these Celtic graves. And so another big theme that comes back in my work, well, obviously I'm, uh, we're talking about ruins, about the show, and uh, my main interest is ruins, and but modern and uh, ancient ruins, and uh, kind of ruins that are uh, decided as UNESCO as uh, official ruins, and then ruins that are illegal ruins, ruins that are demolished, and the whole absurdity of it, this is me getting sucked in the smoke with my cameraman last time I hear. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of my recent work has been about this kind of stress within the city to restore or, or to get this kind of what I call crusade for urban renewal, this kind of big uh, uh, effort uh, towards, uh, this big effort in, in order to kind of, it's a kind of neglect of ruins, I call it, this kind of way of like trying to fix cities as much as we can, even though we know that uh, uh, decaying buildings in a way is a kind of natural course of things and so this is this happening in Glasgow and Scotland which is kind of a bit the opposite of American cities in that sense because uh, what most of the buildings we're demolishing now in Europe are these modernist buildings from the 60s as opposed to uh, I mean from, from what I know about buildings demolished in America when I crossed America a few times like uh, in Baltimore, in Pittsburgh, in Cleveland, in Detroit, it's uh, mostly these historical houses that are in the city center as opposed to these buildings that are in the suburbs. And um, because when, uh, of course, we're talking about shrinking cities, back to shrinking cities, about uh, first families to move out of the cities for the rich families, so uh, mansions of Brush Park, as an example, in Detroit, were the first ones to be abandoned as opposed to, in France, uh, abandoned uh, housing estate from the 60s. I'm going to show the whole film, but the film fades into another shot that I shot at the same angle at night of, uh, of uh, Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, uh, I don't know if everyone's been there, but I, I, I didn't know. But Niagara Falls is lit at night. The whole falls are lit. And uh, they're lit in this kind of rainbow color. Uh, they change from green to purple to, to white. But, which is kind of, uh, which was to me a very big uh, surprise and shock that they're lighting this. Uh, I think that it's not a monument. And, uh, it's kind of, to me, a celebration, of both, both shots, a celebration of uh, failure to preserve anything, you know, to preserve uh, the, 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 one of the greatest wonders of the world. Here we are celebrating, lighting the whole thing up, and here we are, uh, see now it's changing to white. Um, and it's filmed also from a skyscraper built on the, um, of course, on the Canadian side. And uh, Mario was talking about failure, and I think like failure is a lot of, it's very, very important also for me. Failure is a, a, often a kind of a starting point for things. It's always without sound? Yes. All these films are silent, yeah. But it's, it was interesting because uh, none of these places are, are monuments and uh, I, I live in Berlin or in Europe. It's, uh, the only things that you have lit at night are always monuments. So also here in Washington, we go drive, it's a very dark city and monuments are hit. And then you have this tower block. The, the reason is that this building was lit at night because, um, make it quick, a, a train track was, was right behind this building that, that fall, there was a train track licking Glasgow and Edinburgh, two biggest cities in Scotland, so they couldn't knock it down during the day. 
they had to, if they had to knock it down during the day, they would have to shut traffic, which is a very important train track. So they had to knock it down when trains were not running, so they had to knock it down at 3 in the morning. But in order, the contractors, in order to see where the rubber was falling, had to lit the whole thing up. And so, during these 20 minutes, it was lit up before it died, before it was demolished. It became this kind of monument in the night. It was united. It was, it was incredible because we had uh, the castle of Edinburgh that was also lit. And through the night, for these 20 minutes, they had this kind of great moment. And it's also a bit of the same thing. Niagara Falls is not also a monument. It's also kind of something that is... Uh, and a lot of my work is about this way that it's, it's not a full critic, I would say, about how mayors or urban planners deal with, uh, with, with monuments or planning, or, but, but more of kind of finding a way how, how clumsy we are towards like heritage and you know the mayor of Glasgow is only dealing with the mistakes of the prior mayor you know and the mayor wanted and, and so it's kind of it's, it's these things that, are, that interest me that in, in the end these monuments these things that we a lot of people consider so monumental and inhuman actually raise, like manage to raise these really important questions towards like heritage and are actually very human in the end when you talk when you think about it when you think about this building falling or these falls, and um, it's the same. Yesterday I was in Gettysburg, and like in 2002, a new <laughs> a lot of buildings had been built over the battlefields, just like Ford, and uh, Ford had a, a, a car dealership, and there was this big tower, this panoramic view, and all of a sudden they say, no, we have to get rid of these things, so they demolished everything. So, it's, and I met this woman yesterday who wrote this book about the, the Battle of Gettysburg from 1862 to. 2009, her book said, it's like the battle keeps on, you know, it's a, but it's, an, it's not a kind of battle, it's more about, it's, it's, but still this kind of battle to, against ruin or against, uh, to kind of hold the facade uh, yeah, for the rest of the world in a way. What I, what I mean, I find interesting in listening to both of you talk about your work is that, I mean, one, one in some ways could be a right now sitting here and attending a lecture of two historians or two archaeologists or two social documentarians, two social critics. I mean, the um, it seems in some ways there's a very broad definition of artistic practice that both of you are engaging in. And I'm, I'm wondering if you, if when you set out to become an artist, if you sort of knew initially you wanted to move away from purely making objects and, and engage with more research-based work? Hmm. Or is this something that you've just, you've come to in the process of developing your careers? I mean, to me, it was always very clear. I wanted to spend as much as my time outside. I didn't I want to be out all the time, like, but like traveling, but like far out, out of France, but also like field trip. I wanted to be out all the time. I didn't want to, this practice of being in the studio didn't fit me from the very beginning. I was too like hyper, or <laughs> too, I, so I had to be out, and it kind of. And so my my practice was defined by it, by by the fact that I need to go places and like invest things. And I think it's it's more about that, and so it's and and then eventually this was the energy that drove me to go to these places, and and then. Also, you're talking about archaeology. Problem with archaeology is like there's a lot of buildings and structures and places that that 
fail to be recognized as archaeology or like go into this kind of wasteland of not listed or not preserved or and so these things are, are you know, you're Mexican, we talk about Cancun, for example, when I saw my last films, you can read a hundred books about Mayan architecture, but you, you have to go for yourself to find out this Mayan pyramid is, you know, it's, there's a golf course on the left and a highway here and the Hilton is built over it and UNESCO has poured concrete over it in order <laughs> to restore it. I mean, all these things, you have to see it for yourself, you know, and so this, so my practice is very much about being, being outside, being like, um, like trying to confront myself, like being in reality. And I, don't, I have a very small studio in Berlin that I use, but it's much more kind of something where things arrive a bit dead or references. Uh, I didn't know. No, I didn't know I was going to do that. I mean, I uh, <clears throat> I started doing work that. Um, well, I, I, I had a stupid idea that it was just to, uh, the school where I was, there was it was mainly uh, managed by a, a number of late Mexican abstract expressionists. So I kind of felt like I had to go to the library and start doing research just to figure out the way to justify that I was doing something that I didn't want to do with myself. I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to talk about myself or, or do anything. I, I wanted to do something just very rational, so that brought me to the library and then it just went on and on and on in kind of a research, more research-based practice. And um, um, coincidentally, I, I figured that after 10 years I, myself, I am more and more in my work, <laughs> but, which is what I was trying to fight against, but yeah. So it was just, <laughs> just one thing led to the other. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, I was talking to some people earlier, and, and I mentioned that I was a bit envious of, of essentially what is your art historical research, um, because I have often have the feeling that working within the context of museums, your your um, your end goal is predetermined. So you conduct research because you're aiming to create an exhibition that celebrates a particular artist's accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the piece that you did with Danielle Buran, you're, you were looking in some ways at an artist's failure rather than their success. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if there, you know, if there really is this great potential for artists to act as researchers and, and uncover more of an art history or more of an architectural history um, than you know, those in the museum field might might be pursuing. Well, I, I, yeah, definitely. I think that there's. I mean, I guess it's not only museums, but probably academia. I think my, for example, I think academia has a certain number of rules, a certain number of of conventions that I think sometimes might might stop or might just define too much. I think most of my research is um, <clears throat> most of the time is, is I try to kind of go to the to the sources where which hasn't been consulted or hasn't been checked and I go talk to the people who lived through things instead of going through other books and things like that so I think in that sense yeah I mean I think the art practice art art production maybe allows a little bit of a more Freedom, freedom uh, in in terms of research and how do you, I mean? There's no, yeah, there's no pressure of, of also like I mean I think my, my most of my works are not books <laughs> or you know they don't have a specific 
uh, I mean, it might, somebody might, some historian might come to my show and say, like, well, what, what is this anyway? I mean, it doesn't say. Much. <laughs> I mean, it's also you mean the way it's not you true? present. Like some historians will tell. Well, no, it's just the way things are presented. Probably they're not necessarily clear, or black and white. I mean, they're just more. Um, so hopefully, I mean, I hope that it's kind of a dream, but I, I hope that my work actually kind of just begins a, a more depth research and more sort of black and white research of somebody else. It's, but it they're not, they don't, I mean, I think a big, big chunk of the way that my work is, is presented and configured, you say that, you say that word? Or there, the way it's, it's constructed, it's very much about acknowledging that it's some kind of um, historical research sometimes, uh, but also it, it doesn't pretend to be the truth, it doesn't pretend to be uh, to set up any canon or anything, it's just a very, very personal commentary of something mm -hmm. that hopefully can, you know, gives way to something else. Yeah, I mean, to me also it's important, I mean, but to me it's not so, the way that I approach things, I, 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 I try to go to different sites and then I, uh, I'm, I kind of have an artistic approach to things. I try to look at uh, things and, and the state that they are now, like before I know who built it or in which social context this housing estate was built or I tried to look at it without nostalgia or without kind of any form of input I tried to look at it as a whole like kind of how, it lo how it looks now and how and then I start my research and uh, I think uh, I'm also a bit like my own sense that I'm not interested in saying the absolute truth about these places what I also like is that there are such remote places that it, it's ca it kind of builds for me a kind of uh, uh, a f a field or a base for my work that I, you know, uh, if I were to talk about Duchamp now, maybe 15 people in the audience would say, hey, no, it's not about this or that, but no one can tell me about that <laughs> that building in Glasgow, you know, it's, it's kind of... So for me it was, it was also about uh, uh, like feeding my work in that sense of like going to, uh, looking for very obscure and uh, random places where I can start to build. Uh, it's always close to reality. I mean, this, this building really felt and everything it, it, it went down, but it's, 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 it's a form of fiction that is very soft, I call it soft fiction. All happened, but uh, I always add a layer of fiction to it, uh, but a very soft one. Uh, I don't want to turn it to a, new, a whole new narrative or anything. I, I'm just kind of experiencing the world and slightly changing it. So make it more personal. But I mean, it's an interesting term and it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of what we, what we might read or see and feel is a more objective history because of course one could argue that there's a layer of, of the personal that gets put on top of any story that's told, even if it's supposedly a factual one. It's sort of how much the author or um, the editors kind of own up to the fact that you know everything is filtered through a personal lens. Yeah. Uh, well, another thing that I'm curious about. I mean, you you just said, Sifrin, that you don't feel nostalgia for mm -hmm. your subjects, but it it seems that both of you are are kind of looking at a period <laughs> of of relatively recent history. Yet it's a period that nevertheless is sort of. In, 
you know, the years before you were actually born. So in some ways you're investigating the 50s and 60s, um, the kind of era that set the stage for, literally set the stage, mm. <laughs> in which you were born into. And I'm, I'm wondering about kind of a nostalgia for a period that you haven't lived through, but nevertheless is very influential on who you've become. But it's not nostalgia because we didn't live through it. So it's impossible to have nostalgia. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think, I mean, yeah, that word, well, that word came up a lot. Comes up a lot when I talk about my work. But um, I think, I think really, I mean, there's yeah, of course, there's always something. I mean, I am interested in in the last 30, 40 years because it changed the world in many ways. I mean, the things happening in the 60s and 70s, and I feel like most of the work is somehow <laughs> about that. But really, when I, when I see it in perspective, I think it's it's really talking about today. You know, it's really about kind of being jealous about that moment and not being part of that moment and which was a moment where where things were changed uh, more dramatically and where probably we don't have the agency today or probably we don't have the the ways of figuring out that agency that people reclaimed back then so it's really that's how I see it I see it as it you know it's it's not so I cannot be longing for that, but I, but I still feel jealous about, <laughs> <laughs> jealous about that, that sort period, of moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. I, I mean, uh, but this is nostalgia a little bit. This is well, but nostalgia is something you 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 remember. Yeah, it's something that you that you lived mm. and you want to live again. But I don't. I mean, I don't even have the fact. I, <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know exactly what happened. I just know it through people or through reading. You know, mm. it's just. I mean, I'm, I have a nostalgia for something that. I mean, probably if if I say it that way, it's for something that I. That I read. Mm. You know, it's something that it's already been mediated many times by the time I get it. So really, I don't know what I, I mean, it's it's an ideal, but it's not really for something that happened back then, you know? Mm. So everything, I mean, I think, feel like a lot of my, the works that I do, I mean, it's, there's just a one other story about something, but it's just, there's always many layers, and, and that story is, it's just second layer, third layer, fourth layer of something. So it's just a new story. Is that any clearer? I'm just making myself. I think it's clearer. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> yeah. How about you? Mm, I still kind of. I think it's it's a bit like the same question about being romantic. To me, I link this question about nostalgia or about the idea of being romantic, the romantic artists. They like also kind of a term that comes back a lot when we talk about some of my works, but. I try to fight nostalgia every day, but I think it's—I don't want to. But, but I, I think you'd be nostalgic for a landscape, for a build. You know, it's—it's it's, it's a little bit like you. You have a building like this one that's been abandoned for three years that no one's been living in for the past three years. That is, uh, you know, a few miles away from the city center of a city that there's no plan whatsoever of anything being built or after it. It's just for pure symbolic reasons that we knock down this building and I, 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 or sometime eventually if you're lucky you get to have an Olympic village built if, if that city is doing the, the Olympics but it's 
yes, sometimes I feel a bit nostalgic for things that have been. Like, I feel nostalgic when I look at Potsdamer Place in Berlin. I feel nostalgic when I look at uh, some neighborhoods in Paris. When I look at flat screens in cafes, and, and uh, I think, of course, the world is not changing for the best. You know, I mean, and I, it's more a question about how how to manage to, for me, to tackle it, to like not be nostalgic, to kind of look at things how they are now and, and um, find new ways of reading them or you know for me it was very important that this again I talk back about Mexico I, um, I want to find a, a city that that would be the possibly the most nostalgic city in the world and I look turn myself to Cancun because Cancun used to be uh, uh, well, it's in the peninsula of the Yucatan. It has such my great mind heritage, but it's just been like, wiped off for building resorts and nightclubs, and everything is soaked in liquor. And young Americans going there, and, and um, but there I spent like a month, and I made this movie that is about how uh, things look now and how. Uh, how in a way we don't have any choice anyway, <laughs> you can't turn your back to the future, you can try to resist or anything, but uh, yeah, it's, to me it is, uh, I feel nostalgic and I feel that uh, in many ways I'm trying to fight it, but again, I don't know if I can, it's a bit like my Polaroids upstairs, in a way I'm trying to a lot of these pictures that you see in these pictures, a lot of these buildings or sites that you see in these pictures have been like demolished since I first took the I first took these pictures. And so, in a way, it's an attempt to preserve or fix these places. But again, the Polaroid is uh, the whole medium of the Polaroid is that it's fading itself. So, nothing is kept. Nothing is. Uh, everything is just decaying. It's, uh, it's entropy. You know, it's kind of. But until we kind of accept it, it's it's. That's yeah, a nice way to put things in perspective. Entropy is all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and does that, I mean, does that word resonate for you, Mario? I mean, there's a certain degree of fatalism or just entropy in, in the investigation of the grape tree that, that you undertook. I mean, is that specific to this project or is it something that um, you feel What is? I don't get it. What, what do you mean? Things moving from order to, dis to disorder. Things kind of... Um, having a life cycle that ends in, in decay and disintegration. I mean it just it happened to be this 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 story, but I'm not necessarily interested always in, in this decay. I mean I think <laughs> it happened to ha happen to be like this. And, and will you tell people what happened to the great tree, or what is happening to the great tree now? Yeah, well, you can go now. <laughs> I should get paid for this. <laughs> but yeah, the grape tree bay—it's—it's uh, it's open now. It's reopened, well, restored. Yeah, when I go there, when I went there, well, um, so what I show you was the old pictures, and uh, what you will see if you haven't seen it, um, what you will see is, is a certain photographic documentation of the hotel when I went there, which I can remember it was 2004 or five. And when I went there, uh, well, it had been uh, for 15, 20 years, I can't remember. Um, I cannot do the math now. Um, been in decay, but when I went there, somebody had just bought it for the third time. Somebody else had bought it before, and they couldn't do anything with, with it. And they sold it again, and this guy from Atlanta had just bought it. And he was going to clean the, the place, and just uh, this year he opened little fraction of the hotel. 
So now, if you like, you can go. And uh, to me, one of the, I mean, beyond the, beyond the fact that that the the, the hotel is open, um, just the just the cabins are open now. Next year, they will <laughs> they'll open the main building, uh, or they plan to. Um, the, the interesting part for me is the fact that <clears throat> the guy um, didn't know absolutely anything of what he had bought, I and mean, he he didn't have a clue that <clears throat> that he had bought these murals. And um, I don't even know if that's true or not, if that's part of the property or not. I don't know how legally it works, but basically he has these this murals, and he had, he didn't know anything. He didn't he didn't know anything. So I started sending him literature about about the history of the hotel and about who Tony Brand was, and now they're, they're uh, re, re, restoring. restoring the murals. So I guess in some months they will, and now they're in contact with Daniel Buren and they're working together to, to make the murals again. So, so um, he, he acknowledged this work in the end? Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's always been acknowledged. It's just not really talked about, but it's always been acknowledged. So you can go and see the murals now, sometime soon. So on that, that relatively optimistic note, <laughs> um, why don't we turn the, uh, the floor over to the audience if there are any questions that you would like to ask of our artists? Yes? So do either of you sell your work? If you do, what do you sell and how is it viewed? How is it what? <laughs> do either of you do sell, how is it viewed? How would it be seen? Um, I sell my work. I also sell my work. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, you, if somebody buys it, I guess they cannot really see it. I mean, I, can, <laughs> I mean, it's not really, it's not really, I mean, they can show this in their house, I guess, but most of the people who buy my work do, do not really um, buy it to have them in their house, but really they do it because they want to support my work. So most of the people, they buy it and I give them some slides and they store them in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what they do, no? I don't know. Well, in the toilets, if you're lucky. The closet. The closet, if you're lucky. No, I, I mean, I, I sell... I mean, I saw these, these, some of these videos are, uh, no, you know, not much different than uh, photos. You know, they're like you can reproduce it to if you have a slide. I mean, this is like edition of five, you know, five copies. Um, mostly uh, videos are sold to institutions, museums, and um, I try to get my art dealers to <laughs> push it towards institutions rather than private collectors. Most of all, because I think that. Since I'm doing with preservation and restoration, I think it's important that um, a lot of these key works, the actual key works, end up in museums. And um, but I make also paintings, and, uh, but it's not because I want to make a commercial work. It's just because I enjoy making paintings sometimes. And so I make a lot of different mediums. I just showed a few videos, but uh, I, I've been making a lot of public sculptures. Uh, I show you a very uh, uncommercial work, something you can't sell. This is something that raises a lot of questions. Right? Yeah. Put it on.
Yeah. Yeah, just real quick. This is a piece I, I did um, because we're talking about archaeology, and uh, I was interested in conducting a classical excavation uh, of, uh, of, uh, of. I wanted to conduct. A, I wanted to become an archaeologist. I wanted to like uh, do do something about. Um, I wanted to conduct an excavation in. Um, Germans, this is a Second World War bunker that was built on the, in The Hague in the Netherlands. I mean, all the, some of you might know that there is something called the Atlantic Wall, where uh, all the Germans, when they were feared the American invasion, built uh, in the course of six months uh, a big front line made of concrete. Uh, there were these kind of for modern fortresses built in the early 40s, uh, facing themselves towards the, the Pacific Ocean. And at the end of the war, what happened was of course, all these cities, uh, all these countries that were occupied by Germans uh, uh, wanted to get rid of these bunkers, but the problem is that uh, unlike these buildings that you just saw falling, these, these structures also made of concrete are built against demolition. You cannot, they're made to receive a bomb from a, a cargo plane. Or, so uh, the, 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 fates, the fates of these structures were just left alone. They, 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 they were they were, it was just impossible to demolish them. Also, most countries were coming out of the war, so there was no funds for demolishing these structures. We were more thinking about rebuilding rather than demolishing more. And um, so these structures that have no foundations because they build on sand dunes end up moving, and they're moving because sand dunes move with the sand and the tide. And so most of these bunkers uh, have been, have disappeared under the, uh, under the sand. And, uh, after two years of negotiation, and uh, I found uh, this, this hill in the Netherlands, and uh, we conducted this excavation of one of these structures using caterpillars instead of uh, like brushes, and and it was it was on view for two months, and then it was reburied again. And uh, so this is typically the kind of work you can't sell, really. That I'm quite happy with. And I've been doing quite a lot of these kind of. Um, public sculpture projects. I mean, uh, one of the things that I found out about, I, I've witnessed over 30 demolitions in my life, and the, the situation with demolitions, controlled demolitions that like on one, uh, which is kind of paradoxical, on, uh, on, on one side you have mayors that want to have more green spaces and more parks, but in order to achieve this form of peaceness, when in the city, they go on this big crusade of demolition. So. On one side, you have strong ecological consciousness, and the other side, uh, big thirst for demolishing. So, what happens is the contractors in charge of demolishing buildings are hold to once the building is is down. Imagine how much waste a 23-story building can produce. They're, they are hold to recycle as much as they can of the building. So what they do is, uh, and, you, and you see it all over uh, Paris and uh, the suburbs of, of London as well, and obviously Glasgow, what, what happens when the building falls, they crunch the whole structure of the building until it's reduced to small rocks, and then this very same material is then sold to contractors in charge of the construction of the cities, the new constructions, the one that, that makes me feel nostalgic, the pedestrian streets, the new shopping malls, the foundation for office buildings, the parking lots, the highways, all of these new structures are made with the 
exact same material as these tower blocks. These structures that are demolished are then relocated, dispersed in the different parts of the city. And which is really fascinating for me to think about. You know, it's, uh, it goes back to like Egypt where you see Cairo that uh, before, before Gizeh or some temples in Rome as well were considered as archaeology were just basically building quarries where places where uh, inhabitants would take marble or rocks in order to build their own houses. And this is how you found um, you found in churches uh, in Rome uh, parts of uh, ancient temples. And so what I start to do is I start to save some of that rubble. I start to buy rubble, 7 euros uh, for a ton of rubble. And I start to make these monuments that are monuments to, to I would say to dead buildings, and they're relocated in different places. This, this one is in the Hayward Gallery, that is uh, also a very typical brutalist uh, building, but that managed to be listed, so this one is safe, will be, never be demolished. But somehow I had this idea that it would, that these buildings that managed to be listed should be the caretakers of the buildings who didn't, in a way. And so um, the rubble was then moved to, from Glasgow to London which is also kind of a political statement because uh, as most English people know, a lot of the buildings that came out, out of uh, British m architects' mind after the war that sounded a little bit too utopian or crazy, they would try them in Scotland and see if it worked. And if they worked, they would eventually bring them back to England. And so like, when you go to Glasgow, Glasgow is basically this big land of experimentation for housing estates and for so it was bringing back the rubble back to, to London and now obviously this part of the building is preserved by being there. And, and that's, another, that's another piece I did. Uh, it's, it's in La Loire, it's a, a, a castle from the Renaissance. It had just been restored and usually there's always this alley that's always made of these small rocks in La Loire with the very same, it's about like two centimeters diameter rock. It's always the same, the, the front gate of the castle and always the central alley. And that alley hadn't been, uh, uh, restored yet and I, and, uh, and I repaved the road with the rubble of a uh, demolished building from Paris so now you have this kind of it's, it's a very invisible kind of uh, horizontal monument somehow that you walk on on, on your way to, 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 that, to that more official building so yeah I mean uh, public sculpture is where I'm going <laughs> <laughs> Are there other questions? Yes, here. Uh, St. Louis, St. Louis. San, uh, Los Angeles? Well, I'm going to live there in September, in January, doing something with a residency there, but yeah, not so much. More for me is St. Louis. Um, I'm making. I'm in the process of making this work about uh, this, this this phenomenon in St. Louis called uh, uh, these people called brick thieves that are stealing bricks that are moving entire parts of cities because, of course, a lot of neighborhoods are vacant and the different techniques. But they, a lot of people want old bricks, <laughs> so they they. They have different ways they set on buildings, abandoned buildings on fire, or they they crush, crush a car in it, and then they remove these bricks. These are very good bricks from St. Louis, 100 years old, and then they move, they sold to 
Japanese people or they moved a lot to the south in Texas and I'm really interested in how yeah, how entire parts, like big monumental things, end up being dispersed or relocated. And, and again, it's like, uh, in France, we have big tradition of, 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 of stealing obelisks from Egypt, and you, know, you find entire structures move. Also in Berlin, you have the Pergamon. You have this, it's a it's a very fine line always. Uh, that's when archaeology was kind of interesting, no? When it was when there was when there were thieves or, 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 or yeah, yeah, or historians, <laughs> you didn't quite know, but. Um, so yeah, St. Louis, um, I don't know, a lot of other cities. Uh, Cleveland is really interesting as well. And Detroit, and Gary, Indiana, Pittsburgh, I don't know. <laughs> is there a question over here? Yep. Uh, can you talk some about the sort of cross timeline of your work? Like you have the Pruitt-Nico video, which the title refers to the U.S. Louis. Well, it's, it's again, it's a lot of my work is, is is not necessarily about a certain place geographically. I like to play these tricks as I refers to another side. I mean, uh, Prutaigo is uh, well, you, you know the story. Prutaigo, Prutaigo was uh, Prutaigo is the basically uh, Charles Jenks is one of the most important American historians about architecture. A lot of people agree that modernist architecture died at a precise moment in history in 72 when a housing complex in St. Louis was demolished and this the housing project was called Prut Igo. Prut was for the whites, Igo for the for Afro-Americans and um, it, was, it consisted of 32 buildings of 11 stories and it was heavily uh, uh, mediatized as a way to, to, to to, to say to the rest of America that, uh, what do you say, état providence is not a, like a state, um, or social socialism within the state just doesn't work. But then again, this architect, uh, the architect of Plutago, who, uh, who just saw his building demolished, was at that same moment, a year, a year later, building the Twin Towers, you know, Yamazaki. So to his legacy, you have, it's quite interesting, you have urban renewal and terrorism on the same level to him. I mean, he died before Twin Towers fell, he died in 86, but it's kind of this, uh, <laughs> I mean, all his buildings went down for different reasons, so I, I always uh, wanted to pay uh, kind of tribute to this, this Modi uh, um, architect who's uh, damned, or how do you say, when you're yeah, doomed, doomed, or, doomed yeah, yeah, doomed architect. And Prutago is a, and I've been also in St. Louis, and it's, uh, it's now a forest. It's the biggest wasteland I've ever seen. Uh, big trees and trying to buy a piece of that land, actually, <laughs> to, to preserve it in a way, it's how it is, yeah. It's the kind of the, we're saying about, it's kind of the Gettysburg of American modernist architecture. There should be a few monuments to where these buildings fell, and yeah. It's huge, and you can see the arch from there, and so, yeah. Really fascinating place. Is there any over here? Yep. Well, I'm curious. Uh, both of you uh, have a little bit of kind of very different artists that I usually, you know, understand. And 
I don't know. I mean, I, I um, well, there's. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm such a such a <laughs> such a unique uh, person, really. I think that there's many, many, many um, uh, artists who have uh, crossover from being uh, what what we believed uh, was uh, an artist, the idea of an artist, and. And an art critic, or or an art historian, or a curator. Or I think I don't I don't see such a such a distinction distinction of, of uh, roles. So um, I guess I I'm just an artist because that's that's where they gave me a chance for. You know that's that's where <laughs> they where they opened the door for me. But you know I think uh, one does one what what we can with what we has. And so I don't know. I think it's yeah. Since since the last thirty, forty years, I think there's been such a development. And yeah. Yeah. I Do mean, you, it, you just to, to make a, a comment. I mean, what's what's interesting in some ways is that well, the term modernism has different connotations in architecture and art. And one way of understanding modernism is a sort of purity of disciplines, and the shift over the 20th century you know, away from understanding an, a visual artist as someone who's just making painting or just making sculpture, which would sort of be this high modernist paradigm into an artist expanding into other disciplines. And I, I think that in some ways, not only looking at Buren, but some of the other artists that um, Mario has investigated in his work, he's really putting his finger on a period in which the definition of art broadened to include performance and research and other kinds of investigations. I mean, even both of these artists incorporate music into their work, which is another example of the blending of the disciplines. Um, so there, there's sort of this interesting dynamic in, mm -hmm. in your, both of your work of looking at a very pivotal moment, and you've already said this, when the world changed in a lot of different ways, and that was socially and politically, but in the art world it's, it's a shift from making objects or making discrete things into creating broader experiences. But also still being intuitive, I think it's important. I mean, I don't consider myself an intellectual or like researching for long time before I think of an artwork, I, I really think, I'm a, very much I think of myself as an intuitive artist, I think. But I, I try to consider what's been done or like where, or, you know, things that bother me or things I want to, you know, that... It's funny, I don't have such distance compared, it's, it's an interesting question, but it's, it's yeah. But I think we, uh, I don't think of myself as so, um, as a, 
as a researcher, like a historian, but much more of an intuitive person, like that goes and says, okay, I want to make that work, and then maybe finds out about the, the, the short history about it. But still, I try to work much more like, uh, still, I think, like a much more classic artist, like you were mentioning, like a painter or something. Is there... Well, I oh. think also there's no... Uh, uh, maybe it's stupid, but... Maybe it's very simple what I'm saying, but I mean, every time, I guess you're the same, but every time you uh, come up uh, with a different idea or with a different interest, uh, something develops in a different way. So you, you just don't have the the drive of, of always thinking on one specific medium yes. and just trying to resolve it in that way. But you just really, every time that you come up with an idea, it's you kind of open yourself again to a whole range of things and, 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 and strategies and techniques and then you just something comes up in a different way so it's just a matter of not having that of being open. that specific medium in mind but, but when you're in art school you see like I only went to art school for one year but it was already I think uh, I knew what I didn't want to become I think I mean like a lot, a lot of things that I've figure out where from, uh, you define yourself also the, uh, from relation to others and yeah from your history. practice uh, as uh, I always thought of differencing myself from from others like looking at what, what people were doing and thinking well you know how am I going to interest the rest of the world and what I do there's so much information everywhere so I thought uh, naturally went into that direction of um, finding a um, yeah. Mm. So there's there's one last question and it's in the back. Uh, yes. uh, thank you both of you. It's been really interesting installation of stereotypes and aspects. I was wondering if you can just uh, maybe give some thoughts about the Well, they are like, uh, yeah, this is another way that were shown in Basel, for example. Uh, there's no particular order. What they do is they're called geographical analogies, so they, they, they're all pictures of different sites put together in a form of collage, then, then uh, put on the glass a bit like a relique, a bit like... Uh, an archaeological study, or more even like a geological, because they, I, I picture them in this kind of shape of a crystal, and then they are in this uh, piece of paper that is too too big to fit in a box, so it lifts the, the pictures up, and um, so each each box places the link, these links between different sites. So you have, for example, uh, on top you have uh, Sans Souci, which is a, a the Versailles castle of uh, the Versailles castle version of, of Germany, which is a fake 18th century ruin, and next to uh, a frat house in uh, Ohio State, um, and next to another form of ruin that is uh, the Pergamon in Berlin, which a whole temple was dismantled and then brought to Germany. And then you have a ski resort that's been just burnt up after. Uh, I don't know what, but uh, burnt. <laughs> and in the middle, you have a picture of um, of a sculpture I made uh, using six packs of uh, Swiss beer. And 
So, I mean, they all play like these different kind of links, I mean, between uh, official monuments, uh, UNESCO monuments, and then uh, more, like this is Baltimore, row houses of Baltimore next to Angkor Wat, and uh, sometimes they're very formal, they're more like, a comp like I would compose a painting or something, and sometimes they're more kind of like, I want to, like this is a building of the Corbusier on the far left, and stalagmites and a, a monument to the Russian soldiers. And then you have, uh, down there you have uh, the last one on the top, you have the Detroit, the uh, Michigan train station that's been abandoned. And you have Belfast, pictures of Belfast. So they all deal with this kind of, uh, yeah, entropic landscape or places decaying, but they are very, in a way, uh, there's no order. The three, three tables are just split in order to, you know, in that shape, but they are very, in a way, um, yeah, they treat every site in the same way, same respect or same disrespect. They're very, uh, they're very irreverent to a UNESCO sites as much as uh, your local abandoned building, you know. They put, I, I try to put everything on the same level and then, and go from there, yeah. And then again, it and, and then at the end, it shows them as kind of uh, it's a display, a bit like uh, you would see in a museum of natural history or so. Because because what I think at that time was that I was taking these pictures outside. The Polaroid was was a bit like uh, like a landscape painting was produced outside, developed on site, and then I would bring them back in the museum. And so for me, this was also a very important thing. Is always the dialectic between spending a lot of time outside and then showing the work finally inside and considering the museum as a kind of dead space, a bit by like a museum of natural history, something where all, everything arrives a bit dead. I don't try to recreate anything. My work will never be interactive or uh, and anything. So this is why it looks a bit like a relic, a bit like dead, uh, when in these cases, you know, and the Cleveland Indians, uh, it always comes back in my work for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both very much for your work.